You're listening to Live with the League, part of the We Love Where You Live podcast series brought to you by the Michigan Municipal League. All right, we'll get started. We have a lot to cover today, so uh, and we'll dive right into it. It's a, it's a special Tuesday edition of Live with the League. I am Matt Bach, Assistant Director of Strategic Communications for the Michigan Municipal League, and i uh, got a couple special guests today. Um, we have uh, Chris Johnson, our general counsel. He'll be joining us in a little bit to talk about the new uh, MIOSHA uh, guidelines and directions that are coming out with the, the, the mask requirements and the public gathering requirements. Him and Harrison Richards will be talking about that. But first, I wanted to kick off uh, before we get with our Lansing team with Emily Kalashevsky. She's with our membership department. And Emily, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, glad, always glad to have you on the show. Uh, we're having you kind of talk about a couple different issues real quickly this morning before we dive into the real hot topic that a lot of people want to know about, which is the short-term rental issue. Uh, so uh, our Community Excellence Award is our annual uh, awards competition. We put it on hold last year to, due to COVID, but it's back this year. And uh, tell us a little bit about the program and, and what stage we have just entered with this, with this program. Sure. So the Community Excellence Award program is the most prestigious community award that the league uh, gives out uh, nearly every year, um, except for last year due to COVID. Uh, And we really like to uplift and recognize the efforts of communities across the state who are doing incredible things. Uh, So we typically open up the applications um, at our capital conference, which we did. We started accepting project submissions and we actually closed that period. And today, uh, just before we started Live with the League, we opened up the online voting portion. So uh, this year we had a record-breaking 25 project entries. And which is, it's a a lot. Um, And we're really excited to see so many great things happening um, with our members, even throughout um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And and many of the projects actually center around um, response and recovery efforts um, from the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, we have 25 projects available now on the website, cea.mml.org. Folks can vote once per day from now through June 15th for their favorite project. And whichever project has the top votes will automatically proceed to the final four um, four projects who will go on to compete at convention, um, present their projects, uh, get votes from our attendees, and then be awarded the Community Excellence Award winner. Right, and this year's uh, convention is happening uh, in person, uh, live in Grand Rapids in September. So if anyone wants to do uh, that, you can learn more about our convention at mml.org. Um, uh, of course, and now you can learn about, like um, Emily said, you know, voting for the CEAs on our website. We, you know, like the top, the top vote getter gets an automatic bid to the final four. So it's kind of an exciting yes. thing we have going with this year with that. It's, it's the fan and, favorite pick, which we really like. Yeah. Um, we'll also be revealing our, our judges um, probably a little bit later this week who will be reviewing all of the submissions and scoring the projects. Now those judges scores will select the other three finalists. So what you see online, these votes are super important. If you want to secure your favorite project, a spot, um, that's the best way to do it for our friends at home. 
Yeah. And one thing I liked about the uh, the nominations, we had 25 nominations, which was a record. And usually we have anywhere from like 13 to, to 19. So the fact that we have 25 yep. speaks well of all the things going on. But also uh, we have the, from all over the state. We got one from the Upper Peninsula all the way down to Three Rivers and, and Southwest Michigan. So that's pretty exciting to see and everyone in between. So that's really nice. Now, Emily, I know you're a quick, uh, just real quick here, involved with another program, our Women's Leadership Program. And that is also kind of opening up. You're now taking applications. Tell us a little bit about that real quick. Yeah, we just wanted to make sure that folks who are joining us today are hearing that our Women's Municipal Leadership Program, which is a part of our 1650 project, aimed at getting more women in municipal manager seats. So city manager, township manager, village manager, county manager. Um, we are putting this program on again in 2021. It will be all virtual. Um, so the geographic uh, constraints really aren't there again this year. Um, so applications are open for that program. It's a five month long uh, transformative training opportunity for women who are interested in municipal management. Um, they'll get some very specific content training on municipal budgeting, municipal finance, economic development, council manager relationships, interviewing and negotiating. They'll receive four sessions of uh, executive development through that program. Um, we have mock interviews for every participant. Uh, so far, we've had 85 women go through this program over the past three years. Uh, so our numbers wow. are really getting up there. A lot of success from the women who com complete the program with us. Um, and interested women can apply at 1650project.org. We're taking applications through June 16th uh, with the hope that we'll be able to notify accepted participants starting in early July. So that program runs August through December. Um, we're excited to see a number of incredible applicants again this year. And is this a free program for them to attend? It's an application, but you once you're selected, it's free? Yes, completely complimentary, which uh, I, I think is um, pretty remarkable for a program um, of this, uh, I would say, sort of weight. There's a, there's a lot to it, and we want to make sure that there are no financial barriers to our participants. Yeah, and this is a program that's sponsored by the league, the Michigan Municipal League Foundation. I believe in the past, the Michigan Municipal Executives have all been supportive of this, yep. so a lot of different all right. Yep. Good. Well, thank Absolutely. you so much for joining us today. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right. You're welcome. So we'll hop into now with our Lansing team, uh, Jennifer Rigtarink, uh, Chris uh, Hackbarth, John Lamakia, Harrison Richards are all with us today. And Jen, I know you got a, a real big hot button issue, a couple of hot button issues, I think, going on right now. But the biggest one we've been spending a lot of time and energy on is on the short-term rental issue. There are a couple of bills pending in, in the legislature. Uh, we've done a lot of work on this. What's the latest and what specifically do you need from our members to help us continue to oppose uh, this legislation? Yeah, thanks, Matt. And, and thanks to all of our members that are, are tuning in right now that have um, been reaching out to their legislators on um, House Bill 4722 and Senate Bill uh, 446. These are the, the short-term zoning preemption bills. Um, both bills did come out of their respective committees uh, last week. Um, both had uh, identical subs adopted. The subbed language was really trying to get at the issue um, dealing with rental inspection programs and that uh, the program having to be um, applied on a consistent basis between um, rentals and owner-occupied dwellings because, I mean, local government is not inspecting private homes to make sure that 
you know, your smoke detectors are working, that you have carbon monoxide uh, monitors uh, plugged in, and that you have a fire extinguisher in your in your home. Um, and I don't right. think anyone's actually advocating for that. So, um, but just like in the past, when there has been um, a, a smaller flaw in the bill, and not that the rental inspection program thing um, is a small flaw, it's it's a huge one, but that alone does not uh, correcting that alone does not make anything better on this issue. Um, they attempted to put some language in there, making sure that uh, local rental inspection programs could continue. But the one sentence in there says that uh, your program doesn't have the effect of prohibiting a short-term rental. Well, if you inspect a property and right. it fails inspection, they're not going to get their license or their permit. And now your inspection program has had the effect of prohibiting that short-term rental. Um, so again, right. the, the sub that was adopted does not um, doesn't do anything to, to get us closer to a middle ground. No, um, and uh, honestly, it just, the language junks the bill up even more. So um, yeah. we are expecting uh, those bills in their respective chambers to be up for votes on the floor, uh, possibly this week, but more likely um, we're looking at early next week. Um, so we need our members to continue to be talking to uh their legislators, as well as uh, leadership in both chambers and um, emailing and reaching out to the administration, um, because I think there was a question about where's the governor on this. Um, there has not, uh, the governor's office, the administration has not come out with a, a position. Um, you know, we have met with them, they're gathering information. Um, so they actually need to be hearing from um, people on why why this legislation is so poorly written and the negative impacts it will have on communities across the state. Uh, because right. the comment was made that they are hearing from people in support of it. Um, so they definitely need to be hearing from people um, opposed to it as well. Right. And, so and again, our messaging, go ahead. I was just gonna say our messaging has been all along that we're not opposed to short-term rentals. We just don't want them to open the floodgates and let them go wherever they want. We want some control and have our communities have the decision locally to, to, to decide what's best for the residents and where they should go and, and how they should regulate them. We're not anti-short-term rentals at all. In fact, we recognize the value and the economic boom that they can have to the community. Yes, definitely. Um, we had a, a great attended press conference last Monday morning. Um, where we actually had some of our members speak to just what you were saying. Um, we have been making it abundantly clear that we are not opposed to short-term vacation rentals, um, but there has to be the ability for local uh, communities when needed to regulate for the balance of the housing needs of everyone in the community. So those full-time, you know, long-term residents, as well as the visitors in their communities. And then the communities that are not, are not dealing with an abundance of vacation rentals, um, you know, they need to be able to protect their rental inspection program so that someone can easily amend a lease um, to be less than 30 consecutive days. Now they're defined as a short-term rental, and now um, they're, it's more difficult to be able to inspect them unless you're inspecting all dwellings um, in that district. 
so there's there's quite a we're building a coalition that we're working with um, different uh, local local government groups as well as public safety the Michigan Association of Fire Chiefs uh, is opposed to the legislation as well as the Michigan Historic Network um, as well as some of the different council of governments across the state uh, other housing um, organizations um, we have put together a website that's a resource page with information um, and we'll be getting up uh, articles and other uh, more information as we keep going here uh, we have been compiling quite a bit of um, information uh, one thing that uh, the supporters of uh, of the bill have pointed to is the state of Arizona and what they've done there um, well, the state of Arizona is actually trying to undo what they did with their preemption a few years ago because it's had such negative impacts on um, some of their communities. And so we'll be putting information up um, regarding that as well. Yeah, we've been sharing an article on that uh, where a Republican lawmaker in Arizona is basically saying, we screwed up, we, we were decimating communities, we're driving people out that can no longer afford to live there. You know, large percentages of the homes in certain towns uh, in Arizona are, are all short-term rentals. So, so it, it's just not the not the community that they wanted, you know. So the fact that they opened the doors, to floodgates to them, um, is a good lesson learned for us. In fact, I think Florida has looked, looked at this issue, too, and they may have passed something recently doing, a, you know, giving locals more control to regulate these. Yeah, they definitely had some active legislation. I'm not sure. Um, it, not every state is on the same kind of legislative uh, cycle that we are on or their sessions yeah. don't run the two years that we do. So I don't know if they finish theirs, if it's still active, but definitely um, those that have gone way one way are trying to walk those back now. Um, I saw in the chat, there was a question about uh, commercial uses. And um, yeah. I think that's a good point that we need folks talking to their legislators about is, you know, in, when you're doing a commercial use in a residential uh, district, uh, daycare, uh, barber shop, you know, those, those, some of those home-based businesses, um, there is usually licensing and um, other requirements. And so to say that, um, just because someone has purchased a residential property that it should be um, regulated as a residence, even if it's not being used as a residence, no one is actually learn living there. Whether that's short term or long term, no one's living there. They're visiting there um, like you would visit a hotel or you would visit a bed and breakfast or you would visit a cottage that you're going to on vacation. Right. Um, that when a, uh, a residential property has been purchased for that reasoning, then we don't understand how you can say that's not a commercial use. I mean, there was a someone who testified in support of the legislation in both committees last week um, or the week before. Uh, the individual said they bought over 100 residential properties in one community to run a vacation rental business. Um, I mean, the person right yeah, there said the running education. <laughs> yes, but it clearly states uh, in this legislation that it is not and will not be a commercial use. Um, so and that, that is, local, and that our local governments can't can't regulate them, can't like inspect them, can't really do anything. Um, 
to the right. I mean, they it does say you can inspect them, but again, there's a flaw having to do that with the consistent basis, or if somebody you know uh, modifies their lease. Um, but the biggest issue is, you know, how do you balance that housing stock? Many of our communities, big and small, um, across the state, are are having um, an issue with housing, whether it's the availability, um, it's the price point that people are looking for. We're hearing more and more about uh, employers that are having a hard time attracting and retaining workers because they can't find housing within their um, what they're willing to pay or can pay, or just the availability of what's out there in, in, in you know, proximity to where the job is at. And so to not be able to regulate um, commercial, you know, short-term vacation rentals, you are just exacerbating that issue. And what are we going to do if we turn, you know, certain communities just into destination places? Um, where is they're they're going to lose their other, you know, drivers for the economy? Whether that's manufacturing, um, you know, pharmaceuticals, those people need places to live as well, so that they can be in close proximity to their jobs. So what can our members do to help? You mentioned it's now moved on to the Senate floor and uh, House floor. So should they be reaching out to them? We did get the question about the governor's office. Should they be reaching out to the governor? What, what should they do? Yes, all of the above. Um, okay. Definitely talking to their legislators, definitely talking to um, leadership in both the House and Senate, as well as the governor's office um, in, in opposition, making sure that, um, you know, if they have constituents within their community who have had issues or who are very vocal on this issue that they're passing on that information to those individuals as well so they can you know have their voices heard um, but not just you know again I think it's very important Matt like you pointed out we are not opposed to short-term rentals we're opposed to completely um, tying the hands of local government and being able to regulate um, when there is an issue in this in, in their community. Um, people are going to their locally elected officials on this. Um, and these bills completely wipe out the ability for locally elected officials um, to do anything about concerns um, or issues when they arise. And any of the right. existing regulations on the books would be, uh, you couldn't enforce those going forward if, if yeah, House you, Bill 4722 is enacted. They take those, that takes away all, and that's a really good point, because a lot of our communities, like you said, have heard from their members. They did months of research and work and public hearings, and they formed these, these policies, these regulations that the community wanted, and there was a lot of compromise and collaboration going on. And now these two bills, if they get passed, wipes all that work out. And basically says you can't do anything that your community wants you to do, which is very frustrating, I know, for our members that have spent all this time working on yeah. these things. So. Well, and the bills also say that, you know, locals can still respond to nuisance issues. So noise, trash, parking. Right. Um, but we know many of our uh, police forces, you know, are having a hard time responding to all their road patrol issues, let alone, you know, running every time there's a noise complaint. And not that they're not responding. They can take a, you know, a complaint over the phone. Um, but it, it's laughable to think that we can turn um, local police into, you know, neighborhood hall monitors on this issue. And so I think being able to talk from that aspect of why that's not realistic when when we do have a property that's an issue in a neighborhood, um, to just think that, you know, 
well, we'll give them a noise violation every time. Well, those people turn over, you know, the next weekend or that week, and we need to be able to hold the property owners accountable as well. Right. And that's one of the things, if our, if our members do call their legislators, particularly ones that are in support of this legislation, that they'll probably hear and say, well, I support property rights. I support personal property rights. That's why I'm supporting this bill. And the easy answer to that is, well, you're only supporting the one side of the property rights, which is yeah. the corporates that are coming in, like this one example you had of this guy buying up 100 homes. You're supporting his rights, but you're not supporting the people who live next door to those 100 homes that have to live with the revolving door next door of people coming and going. Is that correct? That's correct. Just just dying on the sword of property rights is a complete oversimplification of, you know, what's going on here. Um, housing is complex, um, and this issue is complex. It's just not, uh, well, I support private property rights. Okay, well, guess what? I have private property rights, and if my neighbor next door was hosting a party every weekend, we'd have an issue. So why does the neighbor next door's property rights um, get more, you know, validity in this argument than mine? Yeah. Yeah, and there was an article in the Free Press that kind of, it was a pretty in-depth article. It was fairly balanced. I saw one of the commenters in here felt like it was more supportive short, short-term rentals. I kind of saw it as a balance. They, they kind of got in a lot of the different issues. It was pretty good. But there has been a lot of media coverage on this issue that we've been promoting uh, the articles that we thought were more uh, uh, fair or balanced. Uh, so that's, that's kind of stuff we've been talking about. But it's been a lot of attention to the issue. Yeah, and if our members have specific stories or they've seen something in their local media or paper, please reach out and share that with us because um, we are looking for um, those stories and in, in, in trying to track um, that information. And, or if okay. you just have a unique story to your municipality that hasn't been shared yet, but it should be, um, make sure you please uh, send that or reach out as well. Okay. Um, we've got a couple questions that came in for you, Jen, just recently. It says... Uh, is it too sharp to say you represent residents, not absentee commercial owners? I guess somebody's trying to come up with their own messaging for us. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I think that's what you have to talk with with your legislator about um, is, you know, you living that are a, a residential property that's a resident has somebody in it that lives there, works in the area, possibly as kids in the school, they visit uh, the local businesses, and maybe they go to the local churches, they vote, um, which is different than the individual who's bought a property, is not a local, and um, is, is, again, just running a vacation rental business out of it. I think there's the ability to have that conversation in a very tactful way. Uh, another question, will an existing rental ordinance in effect since like 1962, not specific to short-term rentals, be affected by these bills? So it wouldn't be affected that um, if it's not specific to short-term rentals, that it would be non-enforceable. Um, the issue would be is if you start having um, folks who amend leases to be uh, less than 30 consecutive days, now they would be defined as a short-term rental. And so your rental your rental regulations, unless they're applied on a consistent basis between owner-occupied and rentals, uh, would no longer be valid. That's that's okay. the issue with that. Right. And one so of the questions, uh, right. One of the questions uh, that I'll, you can speak to pretty easily, which is, 
you know, we're not against someone who buys a second home up north and rents it out a few times a year. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, again, these no. corporations coming in. So the question is, it's a kind of a sarcastic one. So is it okay? Is it not okay to have a summer home? And that's not what we're saying at all. No, absolutely not. And again, that's an oversimplification of the issue at a whole here. We're talking about the oversaturation of neighborhoods, um, traditional residential districts, your R1, your R2. I mean, if we, if there wasn't a need to make a distinction between districts, we'd never have had zoning in the first place. And so yeah. zoning, you know, at a minimum, it's supposed to protect all property owners and their property value and their rights. And it's supposed to mitigate negative impacts between what I do on my property and what someone does on theirs. Um, and, and that's all we're asking is for that um, to remain intact. And that locals, again, have the ability to regulate uh, when an issue arises. Uh, we're not talking about the lake with all of the family cottages that have been there for decades. We're talking about issues in, in your residential zoning districts. Right. All right. Um, well, I do want to get into a couple other issues. We have the American Rescue Plan. We have some update on that. But Jen, real quick, I uh, understand another preemption issue we've been dealing with, the gravel mining issue. I uh, saw an email this morning. Is there is something we need to uh, fire up our members about that as well? Yes. So uh, that just posted um, for committee tomorrow morning, the Senate uh, Transportation and Infrastructure uh, Committee has posted um, the, the sand and gravel mining bill uh, that is 429, 430, 431. 431 is the zoning preemption bill. Um, we're anticipating that that's going to be voted out of committee tomorrow and then go all the way on the floor, um, possibly on Thursday. And so, yes, oh, we wow. do need... Yeah, that it, that is quickly moving, um, uh, and so we we do. If people, especially those who are familiar with this situation, um, are affected by it in their communities, to to definitely be reaching out. Um, Senator Daly introduced um, an alternative bill, and um, I do not have the bill off the top of my head, but we're working with his office um, to see if we can get some traction with that. Senator or Representative Alexander actually introduced the same bill over in the House. Um, and again, trying to see if we can gain some traction with showing that we can um, we can uh, regulate some of the the issues that we're hearing from um, the other side. But again, maintain um, in that instance the very limited local control that exists currently. Okay. All right. Any other on those two issues? Uh, a lot going on with that. Again, a constant attack on preemption, local control. It's it's, it's frustrating. Um, and both of these bills have uh, bipartisan support, which I found a little unusual because oftentimes, you know, people that are, are from cities and from communities that have a, a local track record are, are against these bills. But for whatever reason, these two are picking up steam on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the case. I think in some of the instances, especially with some of the co-sponsors over in the House, we had new legislators um, in that haven't had the, um, haven't dealt with this issue in maybe their districts um, directly, didn't know the history of it, um, and in one case, signed on an error. Um, and so I think uh, we're seeing some of, we, we are seeing some folks who co-sponsored um, stepping back from, from that, um, you know, some individuals expressing, well, I thought I could help make a difference 
and finding a middle ground, but also uh, I think it's abundantly clear now that this is the same bill as before. It's not changed. There's not a middle ground that um, anybody on the other side is, is trying to negotiate or work towards um, that possibly sold a, you know, sold a story that it's not coming to fruition now. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Jen. We'll keep a close eye on that. Please go to Inside 208. It's our blog, um, mml.org. You can find Inside 208 on our homepage uh, and get the latest. Sign up, subscribe. If you don't already to that blog, you'll get regular emails whenever Jen or any of our team members post something new about a hot topic or a legislation or something we need you to do. That's very important for us because the lawmakers hear from us all the time. And, and really what catches their eye, catches their ear, is when they hear from the local constituents that actually vote for them. So that's a big deal. So please uh, do that. Um, uh, let's bring on the other parts of the members of our team, Chris and John. I know you guys have an update on the American Rescue Plan Act. Uh, Chris, you posted a blog, speaking of Inside 208, uh, just last week uh, about some new regulations or some new guidance, I guess I should say, for, for smaller communities, your non-entitlement communities. So if you could talk a little bit about that, I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks. And just, you know, kind of finishing up on, on the Jen's discussion on short-term rentals, you know, that member contact you mentioned is so important. And just seeing uh, seeing how our members have responded so far has been really, uh, you know, uh, really uplifting uh, on, on our end. And we've had a great outpouring of support communities passing resolutions. Definitely share your resolution. If you've passed a resolution at your council level, please pass that along to us. I know Jen and, and you, Matt, are using those and and sharing those with other communities. That's an important tool for us, uh, letting legislators and the governor know, uh, you know, where, you know, that there is, that this is an issue. Uh, there's another side to this issue that needs to be told and that they need to listen to. So again, big, important, important outreach and important contact and, and feedback. So thank you all for, for your help with that. Um, so yeah, just cool. in dealing with ARP and, and the American Rescue Plan and, and some of the non-entitlement units issue. So we got word, uh, obviously last Monday, a week ago yesterday, that the U.S. Treasury had put out their, we'll call it guidance, uh, regarding non-entitlement units. Uh, they they got us a little further. I think the big win, uh, and you know, John, jump in anytime here, the big win coming out of what U.S. Treasury put out last week was that our all of our villages are now specifically recognized as eligible units to receive part of the $644 million. Uh, on Friday, this last Friday, the state did receive, I got word this morning, the state did receive that $644 million from the federal government. So Treasury is in the process of figuring out um, you know, how that's going to be implemented. Michigan Treasury is. I think the downside of what U.S. Treasury put out last week is uh, they provided all of the census data that each of those local units in Michigan, 1,724 of them, John, um, are eligible to receive part of that 644 million. They gave the census data, but U.S. Treasury did not calculate the actual amount. They've left that up to the states. Uh, so Michigan Department of Treasury will be responsible for determining the actual per capita distribution that will go to those 1,724. I know we've expressed to to Treasury, uh, you know, you know, make sure that those dollars go out uh, specific to each unit's actual uh, per capita population. Uh, you know, obviously for villages that are in more than one local unit, uh, in more than one township, sometimes even in more than one county, 
becomes a little trickier, but US Treasury did delineate all of those separate population figures for each portion of those villages. So there is um, the beta is there and Michigan Department of Treasury just has to, uh, to proceed with, with running the calculation, putting that estimate out. And we have not seen that yet. And then that we have a couple couple different questions on that. When will when will they be coming out with those numbers? And are they finalized yet? I mean, you know, that type of thing, those numbers. So the only thing that's finalized uh, from U.S. Treasury is the local units that are eligible. And again, all of our all of Michigan's villages are listed as eligible recipients. Uh, and yeah. the census data that is to be used for this first distribution. So again, Michigan okay. got its first uh, its first portion of that 644 million on Friday. So the state has uh, now is on a clock for when it has to distribute those dollars. I think one of the things that came out of uh, came out of last week's announcement from from U.S. Treasury, all of our non entitlement units in Michigan will have to request their funding from the state. Uh, we had had some thought that maybe the state would be able to distribute it automatically as they did last August when they sent CARES dollars out as a replacement for revenue sharing. Uh, that is not the case. There will have to be a request coming from each of the units for those dollars and Michigan Department of Treasury has not developed that uh, that process yet. So that's part of what uh, we'll have to have the Michigan legislature appropriate the funds and we'll have to have the Michigan Department of Treasury announce the process for those dollars and how local units, how our non-entitlement units will get those dollars. Yeah, so do we expect, I think, go ahead, John. Yeah, because I think that was maybe one of the biggest developments that we saw last week um, because the, the guidance that the U.S. Department of Treasury issued was guidance for the state, uh, not necessarily guidance for those NEUs or non-entitlement uh, units of government. And that guidance that the state received, as Chris has been talking about here, really triggers now a multi-step process, right? First is, is, is what the legislature has to do, which is actually, you know, accept that money and appropriate it, which they're in the, in the process of doing. Treasury then, once that money gets uh, appropriated, then has to disperse it, um, but then has to create the system in which it, it's dispersed. So Chris mentioned a timeline, uh, which is 30 days under the law. And there is the ability for the state to uh, ask for an extension of that. I think based on the timeline that we've seen, they may need an extension beyond that 30 days in which to have everything set up and be accurate, right? And then you as individual local units of government are gonna have to um, you know, take a step to reach out and contact Treasury once that process is in place. And I think that's, that's important. That, that is not in place now, so you cannot reach out to Treasury today or tomorrow or likely even this week. Um, but in the coming weeks, there will be you know, more information obviously coming out from us, coming out uh, from, from the state Treasury Department uh, to determine and, and stipulate exactly how to do those types of things. I know, Chris, we have future webinars planned with Treasury right now coming up in, in about two weeks. I think they're the 15th and 17th of, of June, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that sounds right. I, it's not posted yet, but we will be sharing that shortly. So, John and Chris, what do you recommend? If, you know, we know a lot of our communities are doing budgeting right now, particularly for these non-entitlement communities. What do you recommend they're doing if they want to have at least an idea of what they're going to be getting? 
uh, what what advice do we have for them? Well, I mean, certainly go back to the talking points that we've had out uh, kind of all along, which is just remember this: these dollars come in two in two buck in two tranches. So you're going to get half of the the funding this year and half next year. Take your time. You don't have to spend it all uh, right away. In fact, some of the guidance has indicated you have to uh, you know kind of account for the dollars by the end of 2024, but you don't have to spend it down until the end of 2026. So you've got a period of time. You earmark it, but not okay. Correct. And the other part is, you know, we don't necessarily know a lot of a lot of communities don't necessarily know yet what their losses look like. U.S. Treasury has put out a a formula for how to determine what your loss, to determine your loss. That loss is is based upon an actual kind of trend line for what your revenue would have expected. They've kind of set a baseline of 4.1% growth is kind of an average expectation, but there's also a separate calculation that can be run. So, you know, you don't necessarily know what your losses are yet, uh, especially when looking at potential property appeals that might be happening this year or next year for commercial businesses or office buildings, uh, hotels. So, you know, there's a lot of potential loss that you know, communities are still still waiting to see. And that's something that was talked about by uh, U.S. Treasury and White House staff right after the that 151-page guidance came out a couple weeks ago about the fact that, you know, this is meant to be a, uh, a foundation for rebuilding the economy. And, and they watched what happened after the Great Recession and saw how, you know, there was a longer time, a longer tail that local government, state and local government really kind of dragged the economic recovery because they didn't have an ability to respond over that longer period of time when the recession hit them. Okay. Yeah. And, and, I, few and I think Chris, sorry, and I think Chris too, you know, in the, in the blog that you posted in that guidance that treasury put out and, and we can continue to push this out to, to members in, in this interim process, while the state is developing, you know, their submission portal uh, or whatever it may be at the end of the day, you know, there is some specific information that is very clear in that guidance that uh, the state's going to have to ask for. So our members getting prepared uh, to submit that, uh, they can start to take some of those steps now, everything from obviously, you know, the, the local unit's name and their, and their taxpayer identification number, their DUNS number, um, but who the authorized representative is, is going to be in that community contact name and person or for that person title, phone number, email, stuff like that. So there is some pieces of information that our members can start to get together based on that guidance. So when the state treasury department does ask for it, you're prepped and, and ready to go. And, and Chris, I think that's something we can continue, you know, to push out. And, and I can see one of the questions in here, um, all of those non-entitlement local units of government will have to apply for it. So whether that's city, village, or township, uh, that will have to have to take place. So as we think about Treasury standing up that program, that's a program where 1,724 units of government will have to uh, apply for that funding. Um, so it is an undertaking that, that has to take place. It's not, like Chris said, uh, done in the same fashion that the CARES funding was done. I think, Matt, just, what is the, go ahead. One of the things, too, just in terms of what members can think about is, I know John and I are working and, and our colleagues at the Township and County Association are working, you know, very, very diligently to work with the state. Remember, the state has six and a half billion dollars of their own funding under ARP. 
So, you know, there's the potential for a lot of collaboration, either with the dollars that your counties receive or dollars that the state receive, uh, or even working collaboratively with your partner communities around you uh, to leverage dollars for programs and, and grant opportunities or funding opportunities that haven't even been announced yet. Again, the state's in the middle of a budget process right now. Uh, they just finished their consensus revenue estimating conference. Uh, and so we're going to be seeing budget negotiations and these ARP funds are going to be part of those budget negotiations. So there will be other funding opportunities, grant opportunities that communities can try and tap into and utilize some of these dollars uh, for that. Okay. Uh, one of the questions it says now that the, the top villages are included, is that will that take away money from other communities that were already listed, like your larger cities? Is there a shuffling of funds around now that we know that villages are entitled to this funds as well? Yeah, the, you know, this is something we, we've talked a little bit about beforehand, right? So the 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 overall pot of money of of the 65 billion has remained consistent, right? The the congressional offices that put together the initial estimates were doing that purely as as estimates without the the full set of facts. And so as they've done that, those numbers based on what Treasury has put out has shifted a little bit. But what we know right. specifically today is that the state is going to get $644 million specifically for the non-entitlement uh, units of government. That's a slightly different uh, number than what was originally estimated, but as they really got every individual local unit of government, so 19,000 of them nationwide into their proper categories as defined by the legislation, those numbers did shift. And now as we see that breakdown, uh, we always knew, I, I would say that villages would be included, but because they weren't listed, you know, sometimes they were included in the township number, uh, you know, with that number shifting and with population estimates coming in based on 2019, you know, all of that is now being put together, calculated. So could there be shifts in what we saw as an original estimate? Yes, there may be some shifts, but at the same time, they were purely estimates. We're work working with a much better set of facts now, which I believe the next time then we see numbers, we will see accurate numbers for what they are, but not drastic changes in what we saw uh, from original uh, you know, numbers that were put out. Right. And the large cities, they, they already got that. I believe they got their first tranche of funding. I, I think they've already got that money. So that, that's coming in for the, for, the, for the entitlement communities, correct? Well, and again, Matt, they have a similar process other than they're working direct with the feds, right? So the feds make that money eligible. They still have to go through an application process and do that. And then that money gets, uh, you know, transferred in, into their account, much like the state will do uh, to, to the NEUs. Um, to say whether they've all done that or not yet, I don't, I don't know, but that process has, has okay. been open to them. Okay, I've just seen some communities saying, hey, we, they have the funding already. So they've obviously gone through the steps they needed to do to get that funding. Okay. Yeah, and that's, and that's oh. the big difference, Matt. And this is, this is important to, to remind our members of. The federal government has not been in the position where they're distributing dollars to 1,900 or 19,000 local units of government across the country. And that's why the state has to play a role in this in, in terms of that distribution and why those two separate pots exist and why there's a, a difference in timing between the two. I, I think what we're trying to do actively right now is ensure that we work with all parties involved to make sure that one process happens as quickly as it's able to and as streamlined as possible in accordance with the guidance. Yeah. 
Uh, one other quick question was somebody saying, so our end of the fiscal year is June 30th. Do you think we will have any of these funds in hand by then or not? I know that's kind of a crystal ball question. A lot of different ifs and ands uh, relate to that. If they fill the paperwork out, if the money's available, you know, Chris is getting out his uh, crystal ball right now, his magic eight ball. What does it say, Chris? Outlook, not so good. <laughs> okay, by June 30th. Yeah, well, <laughs> turn to me for the serious answer. I don't know if that's good either. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think what we know, again, if we just think about the, the general budget process that's going on in the state right now, I, and again, this, this is hard to predict because of the moving parts, but I think it is very likely based on the legislative schedule that we will see those dollars move their way through the appropriation process before the end of the month. Um, the, the legislature it is highly unlikely to, to let that go simply because of the timeframes within the law. The extension that may be needed, if it's needed, will be to ensure that Treasury can stand up the system to distribute the dollars and collect the appropriate information. So in all the conversations that we continue to have, it, it, it's not an issue of whether or not we wanna send the money to local government. It's about making sure that we have the proper process in place in which to do it so they can collect it, distribute it appropriately, and then our local governments can can use it in the fashion in which they're allowed to do so. Okay. All right. A uh, couple more questions have come in, and I'm looking through those now. Oh, uh, so um, one of the persons, and this is one of our talking points. They said, you know, in our area, it feels like we we don't really don't have much input on how these dollars are spent. We're encouraging our member communities to be real collaborative because there, there is time to have this money allocated, you know, for at least two years, uh, of potentially longer if you have it earmarked. Um, so, you know, we are encouraging our community to be collaborative and, and including. So that's kind of what the question is, you know, how do I get my voice heard on a local level to how I think this money should be spent? You guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I would say, Matt, that one, we have to remember that that multiple entities, and Chris alluded this uh, alluded to this a little bit earlier. You know, the states getting their money, but even counties are are getting money too. And so there's ample opportunity for partnership. This is not, and should not be, um, you know, trying to determine winners and losers between townships and cities and counties in the state. It should really be looked at as a collaborative effort to spend these dollars in a way that makes the most sense. So whether that be an individual project in some cases, or whether that be a collaborative project between you know yourself and the county and the township uh, is going to be really important. So, so having an open lines of communication, both with your local government partners is going to be critical, but also your residents is going to be critical to determine what they want uh, and, and what they need. Some of that may have already been done. Some of that you may know from just previous conversations or bumping people into or bumping into people in the local grocery store. But being intentional about the process is going to be really critical to your success. Well, I think, Matt, okay. the other thing, too, when we look at this is, is, you know, remembering, you know, all of those other sources that are out there that we don't know yet uh, what what are available for members, you know, whether it's uh, whether it's broadband, the state received 250 million extra dollars specifically targeted at, at broadband and and digital, you know, bridging the digital divide. Uh, so if communities are thinking about that, they need to remember, hey, there's a whole other pool of funding out there that's specifically for this purpose. 
So maybe there's a way to extend our dollars, leverage our dollars uh, even greater. Or maybe we don't need to spend our money on uh, our specific allocation on this. We'll be able to access those dollars through a different source. Uh, we've talked to other communities okay. that are looking at, well, I want to do, you know, we're thinking about doing X. We have this need in our community. Again, looking at what that $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal has kind of throughout the whole mix, there are many different opportunities and some of those specifically for purposes that you might not need to spend your specific dollars on. There might be a program out there that's already providing funding for it. So taking the time of talking to your state partners, working through the league, uh, working within your region, you know, all of those things will give you an opportunity to make sure you have the best information or spending, spending your allocation uh, in the most effective way possible, most transformative way possible. Okay. Well, I do want to bring on uh, Chris Johnson, our general counsel in the Harris Center Richards. Uh, we got most of the questions on the ARP answer that I saw in the chat, but we have Chris at Harris Center here to talk a little bit about the, the Myosha uh, topic, I guess. I couldn't think of the right word to use to describe that, uh, but there's some new guidelines out that are being changed and tweaked, but we have the new uh, mask guidelines that are issued by um, DHS. So I was hoping you two could just break it all down for us, particularly community-specific questions uh, regarding the meetings, public meetings that a lot of our communities are having and, and festivals this summer. What are things looking like uh, with what's being uh, required? Harrison and Chris, welcome to the show. Welcome. Um, one of the things, I guess, um, it's very timely today because today's the day that the MDHHS order goes into effect. Um, there's going to be no capacity limits on outdoor activities, which is probably really good news for our communities uh, that are going to hold festivals or possible parades in the future. Um, those are not limited right now. Um, another uh, interesting thing is that the capacity limits are not enforced at residential uh, gatherings. So if you're having a party, even um, at your home, you can have the party and you don't need uh, to have a limit on that. Um, the mask issue is a little bit different. Um, they're saying that if you've been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, so that would be your two shots or one shot of Johnson & Johnson and have uh, two weeks past that, uh, you don't need to wear a mask indoors anymore. Obviously the problem with that is getting confused with the people that aren't wearing masks that aren't vaccinated. It's gonna be kind of a difficult um, sled for both businesses and governments to try and regulate that. Um, if somebody just says, you know, I've been vaccinated, you're not gonna be able to do the, you know, well, prove it kind of thing. So that's gonna cause a little bit of consternation for some uh, local units, I'm sure. Um, it's also important to note that as of July 1, the most recent order from MDHHS goes away uh, as of July 1st. So all of the uh, particular orders that have been issued by that department are going away as of July 1st. Um, so it does not affect um, local states of emergencies that have been declared. Um, it does not so that will still allow governmental entities, at least through the end of December, uh, to continue to meet virtually so long as those states of emergencies uh, stay in place. 
Um, so we'll, we'll see on all those things. And I'll first want to deal with the, uh, the other part of it, which is uh, regulations from uh, MIOSHA. Yeah, go ahead. Just tell, tell us a little about what MIOSHA is and why these regulations are important here, Simon. For sure. So MIOSHA is the state agency that oversees op operations in our workplace environment. So all of us go to work. We have requirements that we're supposed to abide by. We have the postings in our businesses. So they're the agency that oversees that. Of course, during COVID-19, we saw that there were emergencies put into place to accommodate where we were in the pandemic. So mask wearing whenever you know we were in the workplace, um, if it was necessary to be there when you were either providing services or receiving them. We were prioritizing remote work. So many of us were working remotely up until May 24th um, and many other guidelines. So two weeks ago, you may have heard from us as well as, uh, well, from us through the bog that there was a proposed permanent rule set for MIOSHA that would have put into place many of the emergency protocols that we've been engaging with COVID-19. Um, essentially, as if we were not participating in the back to normal plan, as if we did not get you know, robust access to vaccination, pretty standard. Um, so we had conversations with the governor's office. There are many other partners in the business community as well who raised concern about these rules. And about a week and a half ago, the governor and Republican leadership got together to negotiate on the budget and the pandemic. One of the outcomes of those negotiations and that agreement was that the back to normal plan would be scrapped. The governor would then withdraw the proposed permanent rules that were on the table for a public hearing on May 26th. And what we now have in place are the new rules that went to effect uh, May 24th. These are technically not new, more updated emergency rules. And these will be in place going up through October. Um, but what these rules now are, and we'll have the link for that posted in the chat too, they're much more in line with the CDC guidance that we've seen in the past couple of weeks and the governor's, uh, well, DHHS, the June 1st, order, which would put folks in the position of if you are vaccinated, you can pretty much go about your business as normal, you know, mask free within certain establishment as as guided by signage, um, as well as outdoors. And as Chris mentioned, the individuals who are not vaccinated would still be required to mask and maintain six feet of social distance from those that they're engaging with. So much more in line, and I think many of our members would agree appropriate for where we are in the pandemic so far. Um, and then just moving forward, there's also a link I found this morning that I wanna drop into the chat uh, and it provides guidance for outdoor events. So as we mentioned, there's no sort of parameters or limits to how many people can be outdoors in a public event, but it can be difficult, right? So DHHS put together this really helpful guide found on their website today on how to manage public events. So as you're having parades and social gatherings during the summer, um, just best practices on how to advise for face masks and crowded spaces, sanitation zones, and other things like that that can be helpful in the planning. Because of course, you know, you can't completely eradicate COVID, but as we get back to normal, we can provide some structures for our community members to enjoy the things that they like during the summer season. All right, well, thank you guys. Uh, anything else to add, Chris? No, I think that pretty well covers it. Um, Okay. We did have a couple of questions. Yeah, social distancing about... isn't required on the outdoor activities, but as Harasana mentioned, uh, it's still a good practice. Um, COVID-19 has not gone away. Um, 
it still affects people. People can still get it even if you've been vaccinated. Um, hopefully the uh, symptoms will be significantly reduced for those folks. But I think it's really important to remember that social distancing is still a good idea. Okay. Um, and any guidance on in-person city council meetings? That's another question we kind of touched on a little bit. Uh, the same situation exists um, inside. Uh, local governments as a business could require masks, uh, could require social distancing. Again, I think it's a good idea to social distance as a practical matter if you can, um, but it still will allow the government to uh, continue to have an in-person meeting if they so desire. As I mentioned before at the beginning, um, if there is an emergency that has been declared locally, you can still meet virtually. And that's allowed under the Open Meetings Act. So I think that's still a tool that's in some of your uh, toolboxes. Yep, and I know some communities are still doing that. Go ahead, Jen, did you have something to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add, Matt, and, and Chris can, can jump in here if I screw this up. Um, but for those people that are looking at hybrid meetings, um, making sure that they are talking to their legal counsel um, because we don't want anyone getting into uh, the situation where they have their elected officials meeting in person, um, but they want participants to be uh, virtually and you have someone actually show up at the meeting that wants access to it. Um, and we're worried that, that if you deny someone access to that open public meeting, um, that we could have uh, litigation, um, to be facing litigation things. So we just want to make sure that, that you are talking to your legal representation in those, in those instances. Yeah, the hybrid meeting does pose some unique challenges, especially if you're going to try to uh, require all participation by the audience to be done virtually. So that could be a problem. Okay, um, I think that's all of our questions. Anything else from you two to add? If not, all right, well, thank you. I will say, uh, don't forget uh, to um, vote for the Community Excellence Awards between now and June 15th. Also, we'll be opening up our registration in a month or two on our convention, which is in September, We're going to be in person in Grand Rapids. And our next live with the league is a Monday, so it's a shortened, shortened uh, our Monday, June, actually be June 14th, will be our next scheduled live with the league. Um, and Chris, did you have something you, well, Chris Hackfrost, did you have something you wanted to add? Okay. Well, thank you everybody joining us. Emily Kalashevsky, uh, Chris Johnson, Harrisana, Jen, Chris, John, everybody, Bestie for helping us and, and Kristen helping us behind the scenes. So thank you everybody and have a good day. Thank you. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mnl.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.